Hello, and welcome back to the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient Hebraic context of the Bible. Today, we're going to look at the story of Hagar and the name that she gave God, El Roi, which means the God who sees me. This is actually taken from a sermon that I did at uh, my church a little while back. We were doing a series on the names of God, and I did the one on El Roi. So I hope you enjoy it. Today we're going to look at the story of Hagar, who named God El Roi, the God who sees me. But before we get into that, I've got a question for you. How many points should a good sermon make? There is a real answer. Three. Three is the official answer. Um, I remember hearing a story of an ACU professor. Uh, I never took a preaching class, by the way, so you're going to have to suffer through amateur hour this morning. Um, Now, when I was getting mic'd up, my older son looked at me and he said, you know, Dad, you look like Mr. Rick, but with hair. (laughs) But he said, but unlike Mr. Rick, your beard is bald. Uh, So anyway, this this professor uh, said that when he was teaching a class on preaching, one of his students asked him that question, how many points should a good sermon make? And he said, well, let's try to start with one. (laughs) So I think today I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to try to make two points. Uh, We're going to look first at how God sees us. And I hope that that is a very positive message because the way that God sees us and the way that God treats us is a tremendous blessing and one that we desperately need to hear in this broken and fallen world. But then we're going to look at what that means for how we should see others. And I hope that has a bit more of a challenge in it. Because as desperately as we need that blessing of how God sees us, we're not blessed only for ourselves. One of my favorite verses in in the whole Bible is in Genesis 12, verse 2. Uh, We're right in the middle of his call to Abraham. God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, God called Abraham and blessed him, which was so important to his whole family, but it was in order that all the families of the world would be blessed. And so we have to take the blessings of God that we receive and share them with the world. So we're going to start this morning with Hagar, and I want to consider what her story might sound like from her perspective, which is maybe one we don't spend a whole lot of time on most of the time. And so I think this is what her story might sound like if she told it in her own words. I don't know how I got there. Everything seemed to change so fast. I mean, I knew it had never been about me. I was just a slave girl. My whole life, I had tried to be as invisible as possible, blending into the shadows, staying out of the way. I always felt alone, even when surrounded by hundreds of people in the camp. When my mistress thought to use me as a tool by which to obtain a child, an heir of her God's promise, I had known not to hope for too much. Hope had only ever led to disappointment. But some part of me, some little part of myself I kept hidden away, hoped that this might be a way to a better life. When I conceived, I was elated. Perhaps the God of Abraham would bless me after all. And I admit that I took some joy in thinking that it was through me and not Sarah that Abraham would have a child. I know it was wrong, 
but how could I not begin to feel differently? But I felt things change. In Sarah's eyes, I went from being a tool to being a problem, and I couldn't fade back into the shadows. Not now. Everything was different. Sarah became so cruel, so harsh, and Abraham didn't seem to see me any differently than he had before when I was a simple slave. So I fled. That's how I got there. I don't know if I thought I could survive in the wilderness or if I didn't want to. I just don't know. Where could I go? Only one thing was certain. I couldn't stay. I had always felt alone, but in the barren wasteland of the desert, I was truly and totally alone. And then he saw me. Yahweh saw me, and I knew, I finally knew, that he had been watching over me always. He saw my pain, my fear, my broken heart. His angel said that I should go back to the community, but he sent me back with a promise and a purpose. He said that I would have descendants beyond number. Me, the slave girl, given a promise just like Abraham himself. I had always known that Yahweh was not an Egyptian god, and I don't think that I had ever really known him before. Not really. But now I felt as though a new name was on my heart. He was my god, El Roi, the god who sees me. If you recall the context of that story, which occurs in Genesis 16, God had promised Abraham a son, but his wife Sarah was barren, and uh, they seemed to understand that God intended this child to come through both of them, so they waited for a while, um, but then they took matters into their own hands, and at uh, Sarah's prompting, Abraham took her servant, Hagar, as a sort of second wife. But then when Hagar became pregnant, And Sarah complained to Abraham that she was looking upon her with contempt. Abraham still referred to her as your servant, saying, Your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. And Sarah acted harshly towards her, and Hagar fled into the wilderness, into the desert. One of the things that I find most fascinating about this story is that Hagar is the only person in the entire Bible that names God. Think about it. Moses asks God what name he should use, and it's God who tells him the name Yahweh. And we hear of other names like Adonai and El Shaddai, but we're not told the story of their origins. It's it's only in the story of Hagar that we're told of a human giving God a name. And she's also given this promise of descendants beyond number, a promise that rivaled even that of Abraham. And the amazing thing is that Hagar wasn't even a Hebrew. She was an Egyptian. She wasn't one of the matriarchs of the faith. She was a slave. And she wasn't demonstrating great acts of faith. She was fleeing. Can you relate to that? Have you ever fled from hardship or wished that you could? Have you ever felt like maybe you don't have the faith of Abraham? One of the things that uh, I love about the Bible, if you compare it to other ancient literature, is the degree to which it focuses on the last and the lost and the least. The people that other nations and their epics and their gods would have viewed as the throwaway people, the people beneath mention. A household slave like Hagar, a Canaanite prostitute, crippled beggars and lepers, and a starving widow. Even the king 
David started out as the forgotten runt of the clan. His dad didn't even bother to bring him in front of Samuel. Ruth, the widowed Moabite, makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. And then Jesus picks Peter, this thick-headed fisherman, from the backwoods to become the leader of the early church. The heart of God is defined by concern for the forgotten, the crushed, the hurting, those that are excluded and despised. When she finds herself alone in the desert, Hagar has nowhere left to go. She's at her rope's end. She is completely desperate. Or maybe she doesn't even feel desperate anymore if she's given up entirely. But it's there that the angel of the Lord meets her. And this is the first occurrence of the phrase angel of the Lord in Scripture. And he asks her two questions. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And she answers the first question. She says, I'm fleeing my mistress. But she has nothing to say to the second question. She doesn't know where she's going. Where can she go? God saw her pain, her broken heart, her fear. And it's here that God speaks the words that she so desperately needs to hear. He gives her the blessing. And he calls her back into the community from which she fled. Hagar was able to, turn to return to Sarah now because she had a promise and a purpose. God sees you. I think sometimes we maybe can't believe that anyone can see us as we really are and still love us. But God sees you. Is there something that makes you feel invisible today? Is it the weight of addiction crushing you? God sees you. Or is it a divorce that led you to leave your prior church because of all the broken relationships? God sees you. Is it perhaps an abortion that you've never told anyone about? God sees you. Or is it that you lost a loved one last year and your friends were such a blessing for the first weeks or maybe months? They've mostly moved on now, and as the one-year anniversary of your loss approaches, that pain is just as strong as ever. But you feel even more alone. God sees you. And it's not just that God sees us in our pain and our suffering. This is the God that, that knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows all those little things that make you you. Your personality quirks, the, the things that you're passionate about, the unique way that you see life, all the sacrifices that you make unseen. God sees you. I don't like to speak for God. I know I'm not up for the task of putting words in his mouth, but if you'd let me say just, just one thing on behalf of God this morning, it's something that I'm pretty sure he would say. If you close your eyes for me for just a moment, I see you. I see you. I see you. Okay, you can open your eyes. God sees us in our frailty. He meets us as we flee. This is the God that David praised in Psalm 139 when he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. 
Search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you have known it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So those of you who know me know that it just wouldn't be me if we didn't learn a little something about Hebrew this morning. So prepare to enter into the geeky phase of the sermon. Uh, The thing that you need to know about Hebrew, especially ancient Hebrew, is that it had far fewer words than English does. So each word had to do more work, so to speak. Uh, They took on a broader range of meaning. And in particular, words that relate mostly to thoughts or perceptions tend to also encompass the actions that those thoughts or perceptions would lead to. Got it? It's clear as mud. Uh, Let me give you an example, because this works to to some degree, even in English. Um, So I've got two boys. If I tell them to do something, and then a little while later I have to yell, Boys, did you hear me? I'm probably not asking whether their ears registered the sounds that came out of my mouth. I said hear, but I'm asking whether they're obeying me. Uh, Likewise, the Hebrew word for hear is shema. Uh, the most famous or most important verse, really, for, for most Jews in the Bible is called the Shema, because that's the first word of the verse in Hebrew. Uh, you would know it as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, is, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that can just as easily be translated, Obey, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. All right, so you got it, but what's the point? Um, The Hebrew word for see, roi, as in el roi, also means provide. Because if you see someone in distress, what should you do? Provide. Uh, You may remember the story of Abraham going up the mountain after God has commanded him to make that unthinkable sacrifice. And at some point, Isaac gets around to asking the obvious question, um, Dad? where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham's response, as your Bible probably translates it, is God will provide. But the literal Hebrew is God will see, roi. See, the understanding is that if God sees, then he will provide. And so it is with Hagar. She knows that not only does God see her, but that he will provide for her as well. You know, I honestly don't know why God called Hagar to return to Sarah. It might have made for a better liberation story if he had chosen to bless her somewhere else instead. But 
he chose to, to call her back into her broken and difficult community. Maybe she just needed to be surrounded by others who knew Yahweh as well, despite all of their flaws and failings. We need community. We're made for community. And in this social media and Facebook friends culture, people are more disconnected and lonely than ever and in need of authentic community and genuine connection. Bamal is a broken community as well. You won't find many people here who have it all together. Forgive me if I, when I, try to portray that I do. But we're a community of faith, a community of fallen people desperately seeking the provision of God. And instead of liberating us from our painful circumstances, sometimes God uses those circumstances to strengthen and mature us. It would be great if I could promise you that we were all going to live in the joy of the Resurrection Sunday every day of our lives, but the truth is we worship a God of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday is the day of crucifixion, a dark day of death and despair when the sun is blackened and the earth quakes, and yet God is God there as well. And some of us are living in Friday right now. And for some of us, Friday may never fully end until we walk with God in the new life. Others of us may be more in a Saturday phase of life. The tragedy is over, but so many friends have fled, and so the future is so unclear. Was any of it real? Does God really have a plan? And others of us are blessed to already be experiencing the rebirth of Sunday as the future of God is bursting forward into this life as we walk daily with him. I don't know whether God is going to take the thorn out of your flesh in this lifetime, but I do know that he is working to make all things new. And he's calling us to join alongside him in that work. And so as we think about joining alongside God in in the work of repairing the world, I want to look at a few examples of where Jesus did just that. When he met the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, he saw so deeply into her life and into her heart that she went away saying, come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You see, you can't really know me. Not really, unless you know my whole story. And almost nobody knows anybody's whole story. But God does. And he loves you. Or in Mark 10, when Bartimaeus, the blind beggar in Jericho, calls out to Jesus, many in the crowd rebuke him and tell him to be silent. But Jesus hears him, and Jesus sees him, and Jesus heals him, allowing Bartimaeus to see as well. And then there's another woman, drugged before Jesus, and we're not even told her name. But here's how I think her story might sound if she told it in her own words. I don't know how to explain how I got there, but I was there, and I chose to be there. I have no way to defend that choice, but I was lonely, and loneliness drives you to do all kinds of things that you regret later. It was early in the morning, and I woke up to hear this noise outside in the street. It was a bunch of men talking. And suddenly I hear the noise move from outside of the house to inside the house. And 
then before I know it, a bunch of religious leaders I've seen before in our community are standing inside the bedroom. They're talking to me so fast, and it's so early, and I'm half awake, and I'm angry, and I'm confused. More than anything else, I'm scared. And they tell me, throw my clothes on and to cover my shame and to come with them. And so I get my clothes on, and I follow them, and I was guilty. There's no denying it. I'm not trying to say I wasn't. I'm not trying to say I didn't deserve the punishment that was coming. But there was some illogical part inside of me that, I mean, I don't know how I got there. I don't know how I got there. And all I had, I had these questions of how did they know I was there and where were they taking me and was there any chance at all that I was going to be able to explain things to them to... Nobody was asking me any questions. They were just dragging me down the street. And we turn the corner, and I see it, and it all starts to click. I know exactly where we are going. We're going to the temple because these men of God are going to drag me into the house of God, and they're going to carry out the justice of God. I know what my punishment is. They already have their stones in hand as they walk alongside me. My friends and family have abandoned me. I'm alone in this crowd, and I will now lose my life over this. I've lived in fear and loneliness for a very long time. I've tried to fill the hole I felt in my heart for love I didn't have. And even though, because of my life and because of my choices, I had stopped praying a long time ago, I, I reached a place where I didn't know what else to do, so I started praying. And I asked God to please save me, to somehow give me another chance. And I didn't think there was any reason for God to listen to me, but I didn't know what else to do. And they dragged me into the temple courts, and I see this young teacher who's sitting, and this crowd is gathered around him. And I don't know why, but these men dragged me right into the midst of the crowd, right in front of this teacher. And suddenly I realize he's not just a teacher. He's going to be my judge. And it doesn't feel like this is about me at all. It feels like this is about something else, something larger, some game these men are playing with him. And I don't know how to change any of it. I'm just here and I'm waiting. I have to stand before him, this respected and loved teacher, and he will have to condemn me. My neck has no strength and my head bows in shame. And yet this young teacher, this kind, warm voice, he looked at me. And I'd had all these men gathered around me all morning, and none of them had really looked at me, not really. But he looked at me, and he saw me. To the religious leaders in her community, this woman was less of a person and more of a problem. Or maybe an opportunity an opportunity to test Jesus. I mean, what is it if one adulterous woman gets stoned in order to test the reactions of a dangerous young rabbi? But Jesus saw her, and he saw a child of God, someone worthy of dignity. He saw her, and he saved her. You know the rest of the story. Jesus, he bends down, and he writes in the dirt. We don't know what he writes, but what he says is, 
Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And one by one, they all fade away. I grew up in Austin, and I went to public high school in the city. Um, I wasn't really in what you would call the popular crowd. I, I hear that some of the big mega 5A schools around here are so huge there may not even be just one popular crowd. You can't even really know everyone in your class. But my school was smaller. Uh, there was definitely an in crowd, and I wasn't really in it. But uh, I think that was a blessing to me because I got to know some really interesting people along the way. Um, I mean, you really have not met outcasts until you've met Austin public high school outcasts. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, there's this one girl I, in, I sat next to in physics class. Her, her clothes generally resembled burlap sacks. Um, I assume they were probably only made of 100% post-consumer recycled organic materials. Um, <laughs> Yeah, she was the kind of person that had a journal with like leaves and stuff pressed between the pages that she found while sitting under an oak tree writing poetry. I, I never found out what happened to her parents, but she lived in a little house in the city with just a couple older sisters. And uh, I think she was an atheist or maybe an agnostic, but we got into some pretty interesting spiritual discussions when she found out that I was a Christian. She was the kind of person that really didn't care what anybody else thought of her. She was just herself. And she was a pretty interesting person to get to know. Uh, I remember this, this one afternoon, I was driving away from school with my best friend. We'll call him Justin, because his name was Justin. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, uh, we, we passed by my friend from physics class, who Justin didn't know. And she was riding her bicycle home, uh, wearing her finest burlap, of course. And uh, Justin, I remember Justin laughed, and he goes, whoa, what is that? What is that? Not who is that? You see, Justin didn't see my friend. He didn't know her. He just saw ragged hippie clothes and unkempt hair, somebody apparently not worthy of enough dignity to be referred to as human. I'm being a little harsh on Justin. The truth is he was a really good guy, and I think jokes at other people's expense just come too naturally in high school. Um, I'm not holding myself up as an example either. Sometimes I fear that as I've grown up and become responsible and entered the professional world at all, that I, I may not be quite as good at seeing people as I used to be. But we need to learn to see the world the way that God sees it. Uh, there's something that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that may sound a little bit odd to our modern ears. Uh, actually, he says several things that are a bit odd, but the one I want to focus on is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I don't think these verses are about eye health, or physical vision. If you look at the context, they're surrounded by a discussion of money. And I think to fully understand the verses, you need to know that having a good eye is a Hebrew idiom for generosity. And likewise, having a bad eye means stinginess. To this day in Israel, if people are seeking charitable contributions, they'll say, give with a good eye. Remember, in Hebrew, to see is to provide as God did with Abraham, and as he did with Hagar. If we see people, 
if we truly see their needs, their desperation, their heartbreak, we must respond. You see, God sees you, but most people in this world will never know that God sees them unless we see them first. And throughout the Bible, God stands on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the outsider, the marginalized, the outcast, and the lost. We can't talk to people about their need for the next life unless we're willing to begin by meeting their needs in this life. And it doesn't always mean monetary generosity. When we see a heartbreak, we reach out in love. When we see addiction, we reach out in support. When we see loneliness, we respond with community. We're called to be the eyes of God. And if we do that well, the whole world will be full of light. But if the church does not learn to see people the way that God sees people, the whole world will be full of darkness. If then the light of the world is darkness, how great is the darkness? But if the light of God shines through, how great is the light? All right, that's another episode of The Dustcast. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. You can also come to the Facebook page or follow on Twitter. You can subscribe on iTunes, and I think that most of the Android podcast services should have the show now as well. You may have to search on all three words, The Dustcast. I've noticed in iTunes that it may not show up if you search only on Dustcast. If you do not find the show on one of your favorite podcast services, let me know and I'd be happy to submit it. And of course, keep the feedback, comments, and ideas coming. I'd love to hear which authors you like and who you'd love to hear from in the future. Thanks again. Thanks again.